Hear this proverb from the poet Antonio Machado. It is good knowing that glasses are to drink from. The bad thing is not to know what thirst is for. It is a good thing knowing that glasses are to drink from. The bad thing is to not know what thirst is for. Today's Bible story is a conversation between Jesus and a woman about drinking from a glass of water. And Jesus and the woman, in the course of this conversation about ordinary drinking water, transition to a conversation about what thirst is really for. It's a strange story, a little odd, I think, because instead of waiting for another person to seek him out, asking for his spiritual guidance or his healing or some loaves and fishes, instead of waiting for, for that, Jesus goes towards this woman, approaching her at the water for a drink, at the well for a drink of water, and she says to him, but you don't have a bucket. How is he going to drink when he didn't bring a glass or a bucket or a ladle? But why is it that he would need to ask her for water in the first place? Isn't this the same Jesus that just turned water into wine just a couple of chapters before this story? And now he's the thirsty one, not even wise enough to bring a bucket along? Why is it that he is seeking help from this woman that everyone knows he should not even be talking to? This is a woman with a double red X on her forehead. Not only was she a woman, but also a Samaritan, which was one of the despised northerners, one of those folks who believed all the wrong things about God. She too thirsts. And when Jesus tells her that he can quench her thirst with living water, she expresses to him a deep desire for the kind of water that he has. One scholar notes that what Jesus really says to this woman is, hey, get a life. <laughs> and what she says to him is, hey, get a life. Now we're really talking. Now they are having one of those deep, in-depth long conversations, one of those conversations where time stops and something mysterious unfolds. For instead of talking about which kind of bucket to haul the water with or which kind of glass to drink the water from, they begin talking about what they each thirst for. Last week, my husband Dave finished his radiation treatments to scare away any randomly loose cancer cells that might still be lurking in his neck. In the final days of that medical ordeal, Dave and I began thinking about what we thirsted for, what we might dream of doing once the physical pain had vanished and the treatment regime no longer constricted our schedules. We dreamed of things like a long bike ride in Shawnee Mission Park or in Provence. We dreamed about a dinner out where you would order anything that sounded good, not just what you thought you could eat at the moment. A couple of days after we kind of sketched out our dreams for one another, I went with him to treatment, and I was in the waiting room of the radiation area when another patient come in, came in, and oftentimes the patients kind of form a little community, and 
greet one another, so I looked up and I saw that this patient was in a wheelchair and I, I felt bad because some of the patients really struggle in treatment. And then I realized that this patient was wearing an orange jumpsuit and his feet were shackled. And the person push, pushing his wheelchair was not a family member, but a man in uniform, a black uniform with a big badge. And I saw the patient's hardened face and I wondered, what does he thirst for? What is he dreaming about when this treatment concludes? What would living water look like in his life? And I was reminded that what we thirst for is not simply a measure of good health, but something so much more. Is it possible to find this kind of living water no matter where you are in life, even if you're living behind bars? What are you and I thirsty for? What would the life-giving water look like if it was bubbling up in our lives? Jesus and the woman at the well talk about this question of living water and a spiritual thirst for a very long time. I imagine that this conversation lasted not just 42 verses, but maybe hours or days. It's the longest conversation that Jesus engages in with anyone in all of Scripture. He talks with this woman at the well longer than he talks to his disciples or to his accusers or to his own family members. One scholar notes that Jesus clearly doesn't honor the glassed ceiling on divine revelations from women. The conversation reminds me of what conversation often unfolds in my office when a couple comes in to plan their wedding. And I ask them, tell me about when you first met and fell in love. And they'll say something like, well, we met online, but then when we met for coffee over at the roastery, we just began talking and all of a sudden we looked down at our watches and it was almost dinner time. Or we met at a party, a friend introduced us and there was a little spark and the next day we talked on the phone and we talked for three hours and we knew that there was something different taking place. We felt so safe, so comfortable with one another. We opened up and shared things with one another that we don't often talk about, a connection. Even the location of Jesus' conversation with this woman <coughs> indicates that something more powerful is unfolding. Some deep connection is about to transpire because in the Bible, men often meet the future bride at a well. It happened that way for Abraham's son Isaac, who met Rebecca at a well, and it happened for Jacob and Rachel, and it happened for Moses and his wife. Something intimate is about to unfold, we know, when we read that a man meets a woman at the well. After the woman says, give me this living water, Jesus looks at her and says, you have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. Over the years, we have often been taught that this indicates that the woman somehow had a checkered past, but Jesus says nothing in the passage to condemn her or to judge her or to indicate that she was engaged in loose living. Maybe her life had been filled with missteps or hard luck, but we are not told any of that. And if you look at the historical context of this woman at the well meeting Jesus a bit more closely, 
there can be another way to interpret these five husbands. Samaritans' worship of God had been tainted when they were overtaken by five foreign tribes who brought with them the worship of five false gods. Jews did not think that Samaritans were worshiping the real God. So it is that not just this woman, but the people of Samaria, the whole nation, has had five husbands, five relationships that failed to connect them to the real power of God's divine presence. So her current husband is not her real husband because that is a relationship that lacks the full integrity of a relationship with the living God as revealed in the face of Jesus. So Jesus is inviting her perhaps to experience a new kind of covenant, a relationship of love with God. For maybe in this conversation, Jesus comes to see that she longs and thirsts for tender forgiveness, for bold love, for compassionate strength. And Jesus dares to reach across the cultural taboos to form a genuine relationship with her. What is thirst for? What do you and I thirst for? What would Jesus say to each of us if he met us at the well alone? On Memorial Day, I met some friends for a hiking trip. I had spent months mapping out on the internet which hikes we would take, which restaurants we would try to dine at, and where we would stay. And finally, we got there, and we settled in at this little house out in the country. And behind the house was a little shed just with some planks on three sides and open to the back so that you could sit inside the shed on one of the little lawn chairs and look out and just watch the birds and an occasional deer. And so we got up in the morning and we made a cup of coffee and we went out and we sat in the shed and an hour passed and we were just visiting and somebody said, weren't we supposed to hike? So we went on a little hike. And then the next day we sat out there for almost two hours just conversing, just being in creation and conversing with one another about our lives. And on the third day, I'm pretty sure that we sat out in that shed for three hours just talking. And when I look back on that trip, I realize that it was not the glorious vistas or the wonderful restaurants, but just the conversation, just sitting there doing nothing, talking. That was the life-giving water. When the Samaritan woman left the well and went home, she was changed. She was new. She was different. Now she was full of confidence and enthusiasm, and she was boldly preaching and proclaiming the good news of God. She could not contain herself. She had to share. She tells everyone she meets about this long conversation at the well, and she keeps saying again and again, he told me everything I had ever done. She felt completely known, accepted, and loved. One writer says Jesus wooed her to faithfulness. But it seems to me that she was not the only one that was changed that day. Jesus was also 
changed by the encounter. The Gospel of John tells us this story not just to tell us about two people, but to tell us that Christianity in the time of John was now spreading into Samaria, reaching out to the wider reaches of the world. The people of Samaria came to believe about Jesus and the mission of Jesus to reveal the love of God because of her voice. These people that everyone who had considered to be alien for generations were now considered friends in Christ. The story of Jesus and the message of Jesus was un unleashed in the world because this woman of a questionable reputation became a preacher declaring that Jesus is the one who quenches our thirst. When Jesus' disciples return to the scene, they offer him something to eat. You remember, they had gone off to the grocery store, and they say, Jesus, you must eat. And he says, oh, no, no, no. I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they're befuddled by this because they don't realize that while they were off doing their errand, he had been nourished by the conversation with the woman at the well. Something had unfolded in their relationship that was mutually nourishing. Something in between them had been of the presence of God. Barbara Brown Taylor, a preacher and a writer, often asks the question, what is saving your life right now? It's another way of talking about what is living water for each of us. I think that what happened at the well saved Jesus, not just the woman, not just the Samaritans. And by that, I mean that what unfolded between them was a sense of God's holy energy. Jesus was changed when she gave him the living water, when it gushed up in her life, and she shared the good news of God's unconditional love with the people of Samaria. They were all changed. In her book, The Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor describes this moment when she was praying in the middle of the night and she sensed that her whole heart was open to hearing from God. She was finally ready to hear what God wanted her to do with her life. And then she sensed God saying, anything that pleases you. What, she said to God, what kind of answer is that? And then she sensed again that she heard God saying, do anything that pleases you and belong to me. Maybe it would be easier if God would give us a blueprint for life, but instead what God offers us is a relationship that transforms us into living water. I have a friend who is a federal judge. He sentences people to prison for horrific crimes. But what happens after these folks serve time in prison and are released? My friend, the judge, also works with the reentry program where felons who exhibit some promise for creativity and a productive life are guided and mentored and nurtured by a series of resources that help them get back on their feet when they leave prison so that they can have jobs and support their families again. In this reentry court program, the judge met a man who had worked very hard. He wanted to become an electrician, but the federal funding for the electrician education program 
had been caught. The judge went to a friend of his, who is a local philanthropist, and asked if the friend would pay the $3,000 worth of tuition. And the friend, not knowing who this person was leaving prison, wrote a check. The judge and his family provided the work boots needed for the man's training in electrician school. And when he graduated from the program, he received an excellent job with a well-paying salary from the local electric company. I had heard about this story, and I was amazed that these different folks who didn't even know each other were working together so that life could break forth for a new person. And then one night, Dave and I went out for dinner, and we were walking into a restaurant, and on the way out of the restaurant, we saw the judge. And with the judge was the convicted felon and the man who had paid his tuition for the electrician school. And they were there with their families, and they were just laughing and talking like they had known each other forever. You would never have guessed if you saw them around that dinner table that they had just met that night. As I was coming into the restaurant and they were going out, they stopped and introduced me. And do you know what was the name of the man who was the convicted felon? It was Angel. Angel.